0: Uh, so I'm Ken Basinger. I'm, I'm doing the, the psychotropic drugs and biblical counseling. Uh, starting off, I always want to give uh, Keith uh, Palmer, who asked me to do this several years ago, uh, some props because he helped organize some of the slides that you'll see tonight. I, I just really had to add some of the medications into that. Catherine, this seems like it's getting a lot of reverb to me. Does that sound like it's reverbing? It's good for y'all? Okay, it's just feedback to me. It's just me, yes. <laughs> this is going to be a tough crowd. I can tell already we have a problem. So I appreciate Keith doing that. Uh, I'm a geriatric pharmacist. I started off uh, in my career retail, so I did dispense for a while, and then I went from there to to clinical settings. So I work in long-term care, nursing facilities, and, and geriatrics is kind of my area. So it's a clinical Pharmacy, I deal a lot with the kind of drugs we're going to talk about tonight. I do want to let you know about some books that I found it very helpful, and you'll see some of these quoted this evening. Uh, you'll, the first book is, and these are all in the bookstore, by the way, a Blame It on the Brain by Ed Welch is a great foundational book on how God has designed us. It talks about medications as well, and, but there's a lot of design uh, on our duplex being and psychosomatics here, great foundational book. Uh, I love Dr. Charles Hodges. He's a physician out of Indiana. He speaks a lot for ACBC. Came out with a book a few years ago called Good Mood, Bad Mood. And again, this is in the library as well. He sought out to look, get a biblical perspective on bipolar. And in the process of that, he really, it led him into a better, a deeper understanding of uh how we, use, how, depression, how we treat depression with antidepressants and the connection with that and bipolar. This is a great book, and there are a few quotes from that. Uh, Dr. Charles Hodges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, in our resources at the back of my handout. I think you'll find these resources there. Uh, well, Medicine Stop the Pain is probably one of my favorite books. It's by Elise Fitzpatrick and the late Dr. Laura Hendrickson, who uh, I just think a lot of her ministries... We lost her to cancer about seven years ago. Uh, this book is great. It's written from women and it's actually for women, but it's a great book for everyone. Um, it just really takes from the uh, psychiatrist's view, a Christian psych- uh, psychiatrist view of how to look at uh, pain, especially how we treat pain and how medicines can affect that. And I just found this is an excellent, excellent resource. Uh, great stories in that book, personal testimonies as well. Uh, lastly, uh, I had it here. So here it is. Um, ACBC came out with some, uh, uh, an essays in 2021. It's on their website. Uh, it's just called volume three. Uh, this has four essays on this topic of psychotropic drugs does a lot of research. Uh, if you're, if you're kind of a geek like me, you'll just love getting into the, some of the numbers, but the history, it's very engaging, uh, on how, how Christians can look at, uh, the medical model and how medicines apply to that. So there's our introduction. Um, let's start off with the word of prayer uh, from Colossians 2. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Lord, we thank you, Father, for Calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light, uh, helping us to be fruit bearing, uh, with roots growing deep, and doing good ministry. I pray you'd help us this evening to understand some of the dynamics of the medicines that we'll talk about tonight, and how we're designed. We ask that in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so how we start off this uh, topic with uh, a, a description of good medicine? We always want to be thankful. For the medicine that we have. And I I have some things to say maybe about how we overuse medicine, but I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm thankful. I hope you are too for the medicines that we have today that treat so many things, diabetes, heart disease, things that that I work with every day. Very thankful that we have good medicine to address a lot of ills. So we don't want to forget that. With that said, we use a lot of medicines. I update this every year and it goes up every year. 2021, we spent $577 billion on medication. We use a lot. Uh, 2018 data that uh, came out, this is the last data I could find on the most common ca- categories. Pain medication is the number one. Did you all know we have an opiate problem in the U.S.? And these are the most commonly prescribed class of medicines um, we'll get into that a little bit later. Cholesterol medicines are number two. Look at number three, antidepressants. We're going to talk about the different categories, but that one category of antidepressant use, it's it's in the top three, which is pretty pretty amazing. I've broken down to you some of the age uh, categories. I, this might be interesting to you. Asthma medications for children that are young, uh, adolescents. The CNS stimulants. These are drugs for ADHD. It's a hugely popular. Uh, class, but look at the adults aged 20 to 59. What is it? Antidepressants. So you would imagine for counseling, if somebody's sad, they may have had an experience with antidepressants, number one. Now, after age 60, if you cough twice, we'll start writing you out a prescription for cholesterol medication. This is a very uh, helpful and useful thing we use a lot. Why does it seem like we use so much medications, and I would even say we overuse medications, several reasons. I think we have a wrong view of pain. Pain is really a good thing. God has given it to us in our bodies, to, to so we know both emotional pain and physical pain, to tell us that something is not right. Government created a problem several years ago, uh, you may or may not know this, requiring everyone to be at a zero pain level. You don't experience that. You have to be at a zero pain level, and they created really the beginning of an opiate epidemic. Uh, it's a different talk I do. Uh, a lot of marketing. Uh, everybody's marketing, smiling in the marketing commercials, right? They're always so happy with their medicines. Everything's peachy, and then in the end, they speak out this, you know, thirty seconds really fast of the side effects. Right? Don't listen to that part. There's a short-term, long-term issues. Uh, we do really good at addressing issues and, and assigning medications to them. We don't do a good job if those things have resolved on getting people off of medication. So the short-term issue ends up being a long-term use of medications. And by the time they get to me in geriatrics, I see an accumulation of a lifetime of medication, and it's so complex. And I spend a lot of my time trying to weed off, do we still need this anymore? Is this even helping? Uh, a lot of my time is spent there. Alright. So let's look at the psychotropic medications and see why these are most popular. If you didn't know, here are the kind of the six categories that uh, are helpful to understand. There are the anti anxiety medications, the antidepressants, we said that's the really popular one. Hypnotics to help us rest. Antipsychotics is the fourth area. Uh, bipolar medications and then, we have narcotics. Or opiate medications in this class, too. The government, in a lot of ways, includes that in this class of drugs because it has such an effect on the psyche. It has a very relaxing effect as well. Um, So they they add that in. And it makes it the most prescribed class uh, of all the medicines. Uh, We're going to talk about the DSM-5 and the government insurance payment system system. We'll mention the, the payment structure now. The reason why we use so much uh, psych medications is once uh, the DSM, uh, I think I'll study that, the diagnoses of that, once you have a diagnosis, it opens up a whole paradigm of payment. And so once you get the diagnosis, you get paid for, to stay wherever you are, and with that diagnosis comes a whole list of medicines, expected treatments for that. So it's kind of a, a little circle there of payment and medications. Uh, I see this a lot. Long-term use, these medicines tend to wear out over time, and so it requires sometimes more medications. They are an easy solution for negative feelings. Uh, We're all going to mention again the chemical imbalance theory a bit. But in 2019, the, the numbers said one out of every six person walking down the street, every adult is probably on one of these medicines. Interesting. So my point is, you should expect counselees that you're speaking to, probably many of us here tonight, are on these type of medicines. So it's an area that we need to be aware of. Goals and objectives. So part one, we're going to talk about psychosomatics. I think you got a little bit of that already, but it's very important for for this conversation. Discuss various categories of psychotropic medications. I'm going to teach you about homeostasis. Hope you remember that name. And then part three is going to be psychotropic drugs and in uh, the counseling, just some practical advice on how to think about that. All right, we're going to kind of go over this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but just to remember uh, that the word duplex, this is a biblical psychosomatic of how we're designed. We have an inner man and an outer man. By the way, when I'm at work, uh, sometimes I'll ask some of the psych people that I know, I'll ask them, how many parts are we? Because I'm always interested in what they were saying. Today, I was talking to one of the psychologists, and he was giving me this really long answer. But he wasn't giving me his answer, what he thought. Uh, and it really became more of a Buddhist look at life. But uh, anyway, but i always always asking, that. I'm always curious uh, what comes out. But the Bible describes to us that we have an inner man and an outer man, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, would do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, all those over 50 said, Amen. Yes, thank you very much. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So there's these two things going on, this outer and inner man. The outer man would include the brain and your body, right? This is not the the inner man. The brain is an organ. So the the competing view is the monistic view that Keith had mentioned. Uh, This is where you, you only are what you can see, Right. So then, in this situation, all of our thoughts and desires, rather than coming from our heart or our mind, okay, comes from a brain. And then, out of the brain, comes desires and actions. From that, come body responses. Uh, this is really a, a way of describing naturalism. It leans heavily, then, you would understand, on physical solutions. If you're only physical, then the, the answers to your problems will be mainly medications and uh, other things that we could do physically. What brings a problem uh, for the one who embraces naturalism, then the brain, this organ, becomes the final and ultimate cause of our behaviors. Here's a quote from Alice, Aldous Huxley. What we think and feel is to a great extent determined by our state of ductless glands and viscera. Well, that's a sad view of man. His advice was to ignore death to the last moment. Then when it can't be ignored any longer, have yourself squirted full of morphine, shuffle off in a coma. Not very hopeful, helpful, helpful <laughs> or hopeful. Uh, and his wife actually did that to him. Didn't use morphine, but he did die that way. The problem with this is how do you ascribe responsibility to an organ, to, to a blame? How do you do that? And why would Jesus have to die for that? So I just mentioned here, uh, we talked about Second Corinthians, but Ecclesiastes 12:7 7. It's a reminder about death. Uh, when dust will return to the earth as it was, that's their body, the spirit will return to God who gave it. So this is a good design. God is designed as to be body and soul. They are separated. And then what happens in the new heavens and new earth? We get a new what? Body, right? So this design is good. Right And we need to think about that. Man then, therefore, is responsibility. We have an eternal soul, so the wages of sin is death, both physical and spiritual. And the Ecclesiastes 18:4 alike, "Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the son is mine. Look at this: The soul that sins will what will die." Because it gives you the answer there. There's an eternality, an assignment of responsibility. From, uh, from Ed Welch, uh, here's a quote from Blame It on the Brain. The mind is the mission control center of people. And when we think of mind, we're talking about our heart. We're not talking about our brain. This is our mind. Uh, with our minds, we are responsible before God and we respond to Him either for or against. Our minds are the initiators, it's important, of all moral action. The body then is the mediator of moral action rather than the initiator. In a sense, it's equipment for the heart. I don't know what they fed you all for lunch down there or dinner, but it's making me really dry. I'll keep uh, hydrated. So here's a picture. I just uh, For me to get to know you or your counselee, you realize you have to know more than just the outward. You have to get to know them personally. I had this picture uh, here of my son and I. We're off in off in Boston, and we're hiking around. I thought this was kind of a neat example. And Plus, my son Joel here, he always wants me to include him in this thing. I don't know. He just wants his face in there. But well, I know. So uh, here's day one. Okay, see day one here. There's me with my glasses. I am very disheveled, but it's a little bit deceiving because my feet feel really good. And my son Joel's feet are really hurting. Right. It doesn't look like in the picture. I look disheveled pretty much in that picture. But you know what? The reason why is I was wearing memory foam shoes. Do y'all know? This is not a commercial for memory foam shoes. <laughs> but if you walk around all day, get some memory foam shoes. Well, by the end of the day, my son was so hurting so badly. He said, Hey dad, can I wear those shoes tomorrow? We have the same size. And I said, fine. So here's the second day, day two there. Who has the gray shoes? Joel does, yeah. So he's pretty happy that day. I'm stuck with the, the hiking boots. I'm smiling for the picture, but I can tell you I'm not smiling on the inside, right? Uh a little upset, actually it was painful. So what I'm saying here is that we have an outer and an inward. For us to get to know one another, we really have to ask and really get involved and find out what our attitudes are. Uh I'm gonna connect that to medicine. So in the uh yep, come back. When you think about biblical psychosomatics, we have the heart. The heart is then the mind is driving your thoughts and intentions to your body. But this is important. At the same time, your body is keep communicating back to your heart and your mind. And so I think Keith mentioned as well, if we're tired tonight, uh, tired of the pharmacist draining on and on about stuff, uh, if you're tired, it's going to affect your heart and your mind, right? So there's this two way communication that's going to affect you. Which is why Proverbs 24:23, "Watch over your heart with all diligent diligence, for from it flows the springs of life." So your heart is having all this stuff come out, this good and bad, but your body is also sending back information as well. We would say the body affects the heart, but it doesn't command your heart. It's just an influencer on you. Whether that's sickness or disease, physical injury, maybe you're hungry and tired. We mentioned about maybe there's some hormonal changes. Going on, and my daughter Anna uh, allows me to talk about this. There was a period in my oldest daughter's life where she was feeling very sad, uh, and it was it kind of got worse. So she went to her doctor, and her doctor gave her a prescription of what? Antidepressants. Yeah, she got on though, she felt better for a little while, uh, but it didn't last long. She still felt very sad, and she started putting on weight, which is unusual for her. And then some of her hair started falling out. And then we started thinking, oh, wait a minute. So what happened is she had low thyroid. And so when we got her thyroid levels up, ah, the lights came back on. Everything was much better. She got off the medications. And by the way, that was not an easy thing. Coming off of the antidepressant was not easy. But it's also a reminder that we use a lot of these medications sometimes too quickly. So medications, we could say, could have an effect as well on who we are and how we act. A person is always responsible, some conclusions, we're always responsible before God for how we respond to these bodily influences. A person's body, including the brain, cannot make a person sin in such a way that he is not responsible before God. If little Johnny is six years old and maybe his mama says he has ADHD, Maybe he knocks over his friend, Freddie, right? No one can say, well, the ADHD made me do that. Yeah, he's responsible for that. So I work in in geriatrics. I deal with people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Let me tell you that that buffer is gone. (laughs) And it's sad, but it's also hilarious sometimes because they say the things that you would probably say, except that you have this buffer and you, you realize, oh, I shouldn't say that. Or you have scripture comes to your mind and they capture those thoughts, right? And you don't say what you mean to say or you would like to say, right? So we have to be careful that that is part of some of these bodily influences. A corollary to the fact the brain cannot make a sin is this. The brain cannot keep a person from following Jesus in faith and obedience. For I'm convinced neither death, you know, this verse, life nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that. That's good news. Uh, that's kind of how we're designed. Now, I want to, uh, part two, kind of talk about the psychotropic medications. We're going to talk a little bit about the actions and theories. Uh, I liked what Dr. Hendrickson, if you remember, she was co-author of well, Medicine Stop the Pain? She helped me think through this several years ago, about how you divide up and categorize all these medicines. And I like what she did. She talked about medications that improve feelings. And with that would be drugs like the uh, anti-anxiety drugs, antidepressant drugs, and then those drugs that clear up confused thinking. And those would be problems like uh, schizophrenia, like we'd use for antipsychotics, and the mood stabilizers, which are used for bipolar. So you have issues where you're not thinking well, and all of this was helpful. Help us kind of uh, divide up some of this. Actions and theories. Uh, it's very interesting. If you if you pull up some of these drugs and you look at the package insert from the manufacturer, and it says how do these drugs work? Somewhere in there, mixed in, you'll find a note that says we don't know how <laughs> these drugs are really working. Now we know in a in a lab. We know we can see the effects that the neurotransmitters have. Nobody. Uh, doubts that we have neurotransmitters that help affect all these things. Um, So we can see those in the lab. So we have some ideas on how it might be working. But in reality, how that transmits to a change in your feelings is mysterious. And no one really can tell you what that is. Medications, when you take them, do not target one place in your body. In general, they're distributed all over. There are some differences whether they're fat-soluble or water-soluble or how they're processed through the kidney or the liver, but generally they they tend to go not just to the mind, the brain, I should say. They go in uh, generally all over your body. So they have both those side effects, but they're not like a silver bullet. So understand that. We cannot test if the the medication that we're taking, uh, the effect is is that's because of these neurotransmitters. That's, like I said, it's difficult. And that brings us back to what you heard earlier, the, the chemical imbalance theory, uh, which started somewhere around... Um, the 19, I guess, 1950s, the, the medical model had been developed in the early century. So we, we figured out if you have an infection, we discovered penicillin. So this medical model, there's something broken, right? And then we have medicine that can fix that. If you have a um, uh, pancreas that isn't working, you have diabetes, we have discovered we can give you insulin and we can fix that. Well, the the, the uh, psychotrope, excuse me, the uh Psychiatric industry didn't have that. And they sort—they adopted this idea, not based on something they saw that was broken, but really on the symptoms. So they found uh, some medications that helped people when they were uh, sad or had some confused thinking. And the idea was, okay, if these medicines helped someone who was sad in their chemicals, must have been something wrong in the beginning. You see, there must have been some chemical imbalance because we gave them the medicine And they're feeling better, and it was really a desire to have this medical model. They just wanted something broken. I can tell you the pharmaceutical industry loved that idea. They really marketed that heavily, particularly in the 80s with the advent of uh, Prozac that came on board, that there was some chemical imbalance, and this was actually helping sick minds uh, work correctly. Uh, Over the years, there was a great effort to try to prove that there was some chemical imbalance that had to be corrected. And it could never be done. In fact, it was clearly, I think, clearly shown that it doesn't exist. Now, we're not saying that we don't use neurotransmitters. We all know that. There are chemicals that God has ordained that we use in our brain. What we don't think is that anything was out of balance in the chemicals that caused you to be, whatever, sad or thinking wrongly. So it was clearly unproven. This is about 10 years ago. There was a lot of research that came out with some exposés like, why is nobody saying anything about the chemical imbalance there? Why is it still so common and the psychiatric industry is not saying anything about it? Well, about 10 years ago, the pressure got high enough. (laughs) And so you have some of these quotes here. Ronald Pies in 2011 came out with this quote. In truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always kind of an urban legend. Never theory, seriously uh, theory propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Okay. Here's some Thomas Insel, the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, 2012, said the entire field, how much of the field? Entire, entire field has been driven by this idea that you could think of everything as chemical. Well, this might be true in diseases like diabetes where there's little insulin, but it doesn't translate over to psychosis or mood disorders. However, This idea is hugely popular still today. And I had this quote from a blog that I had read. He said, the notion of chemical imbalance is used all the time to explain what is going on inside our heads. And in particular, to keep us from feeling guilty about being depressed. You see, if it's a chemical imbalance, it's not our fault. So if you're a counselor here, that should have set off some bells in your mind. If something is not your fault, then it sounds a lot like it could be used for blame shifting, right? So you have to be careful of that. So you're just kind of going in, getting an idea of what to look out for, some key words to think about. So the chemical balance theory is out there. It's still popular. You likely will hear or already know about that. So here we're back to the duplex model, but what have I done? Ken, what did you do? Uh, Through medications into this mix. It's the same kind of idea. Uh, you know, the body is having an effect on us. So, you would imagine if you take some medications that make you, that stimulate you and make you less sad or change your thinking, you know, that's going to have an effect on you, on the person that's here, the inside you, on your desires, thoughts, and beliefs. All these things are communicating. So, medicines and psychotropic medications would do the same. Interesting question. Is it a sin? Hmm. That's a really important question. This uh, topic has been discussed in a great deal over the last 20 years, uh, specifically in biblical counseling, but, but not really from the founders. There's a clear answer to this, and that is no. Psychotropic drugs are not sinful because if the Bible doesn't say it's sinful, We're not allowed to say it is, right? We're limited to the Scriptures. Now, on the other side, we can use anything sinfully, right? I mean, I I give the example. I love myself some peach cobbler. Thank you. I'm worried about this side over here, by the way. I can I can enjoy that joyfully and I can use it sinfully as well. I can be unhappy that you got the last piece. But, you know, we can. There's some there's some situations that I'll talk about in a minute. We can use these things wrongly, but inherently we can't call sin what the Bible doesn't call sin. And we don't judge people based on what the Bible doesn't judge them on. Okay. All right. Let's jump into the medicines. This is the the first class of drugs, the drugs that improve feelings. And so we're talking now about the relaxants. The opiates are included in this conversation because of the relaxing effect. Uh, I thought that, just to help you on the counseling side, uh, Dr. Hendrickson had this really interesting conversation who who struggled with cancer. Uh, that was the reason for her death. And she talked very openly about, um, about ha- having to treat the pain with opiates and that they helped her with the pain. But she said, sometimes I just took the medicine because it made me feel good. So that's an improper way to use these drugs. So you as counselors need to ask those kind of questions to the most common, most popular category of prescription medications that we have. Uh, Alcohol uh, would be in here as well uh, on relaxants. Some of the older medicines like barbiturates, if you're old enough, you may remember some of these uh, medicines. They were very addictive and very sedative, so we didn't like those. We came out with uh, really safer medications. Originally, they were called minor tranquilizers. These are anti-anxiety and sedative drugs, very, very popular medicines. Uh, Valium, I couldn't put all the generic names here. Valium is also diazepam. Ativan and Xanax are very popular, very common drugs that we use. Uh, that's also known as lorazepam, alprazolam, uh, very, very common. And then you have sedatives that help us sleep. Hypnotics. These would be drugs like temazepam, Ambien. Everyone tells me to read some really interesting stories about Ambien and how it made them act weird, and it's very interesting. Then you have the drugs like Lunesta. There's another one called Sonata, which I think had the greatest commercials. You remember the one with the little butterfly that would, and everyone was just sleeping, and you're thinking, I want, some, no, I don't want that. But they're really good commercials. That made you want to think, try them out. Uh, these drugs treat anxiety, fear, worry, uh, and insomnia, and the problems with them is they are addictive. They're scheduled medications, so they're limited because people take them uh, to make them feel good rather than treating some issue of anxiety. There is a tolerance to these medicines over time. You, they lose some of their effectiveness if you use them routinely. And for the counselors especially, think about this, there's a replacement problem. And what I mean by replacement problem, if you come to me and talk about uh, anxiety, I'd love to take you to Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ talks about anxiety. I could take you to Philippians 4, which is great about resetting your mind in prayer and the things you need to put off and put on. That's a wonderful section to, to work through for myself and others. But the other option is I could take this little white pill over here. And for a few hours... I can feel better, I have I solved anything? No. So after the, the medicine wears off, the issues of problems of your anxiety are still there and still need to be uh, worked on through Scripture. So we have to be careful. And we're not saying we don't want to use these medicines. We're saying we also want to have biblical counseling going on if you're having to use some of these medicines. Okay. The other class is this huge class of drugs that these are all stimulants, these are the stimulants now, and we have antide- antidepressants are in this class. Uh, in some of my talks I go through some of the history of that um, related to the, uh, cocaine and amphetamines and how these all developed, but we did come up with some uh, much uh, safer uh, medications whoops, what I do here, that uh, are very popular, these antidepressants. Uh, we figured out a way to kind of make them more less affected on dopamine, and more uh, active on serotonin. And we avoided a lot of the, the dramatic side effects of things like the amphetamines, methamphetamines, horrible medicines. Uh, we were able to refine those and have them be much safer. Some of the older medications uh are drugs like Elevil and Pamelore, We still use a lot of Elevil um, on neuropathies. Diabetic neuropathies seems to be very helpful in low doses, and stopping those pins and needles. But the newer medications, uh, and I put the generic names here, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but uh, drugs like Prozac, which was the original uh, medication from Lilly, that's fluoxetine, sertraline is Zoloft, uh, peroxetine, Paxil, is Lexapro. Uh, we used a lot of venlafaxine, that's also known as Effexor. The pharmacist always called it Cidifexor. Because it has so many side effects that came with it. You don't have to write that down. <laughs> and then do is used a lot. That's Cymbalta. And it's also used with pain, with neuropathic pain. So there's other ways to use these medicines, not just for uh, antidepressants. They have a, a short-term, a long-term effect. They, they do uh, run in. Uh, usually people will get a, a, the stimulant effect and they'll feel better quickly long term they tend to uh wear off and i'm asked this question a lot do these medicines work and so if you if you measure it by what they, we use a hamilton depression scale some of you may know that it's got some 50 different uh measurements to to measure depression and these medicines the ana these ana uh depressants actually uh, do better they help but only by a few points. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the difference between that and not taking anything and just doing regular counseling, it's really small. So uh, so they're not that effective uh, long-term. Now, where they are effective uh, shows that people that are, are really having a difficult time, maybe they can't get off the couch, and they, they are just to the point where thinking about suicide or other things, these medicines help especially those people who are really, really low. Uh, and you can see that. Does this help them? That seems to be clear. Uh, they do tend to wear off over time. Your body tends to adjust to those. Uh, they, they, The first drug that came out was Prozac, I mentioned, and they had a term. They called it Prozac poop out because after a few weeks, it just didn't have the same kick that it did. They needed more of that, and then they needed to add more uh, drugs to keep the same effect. Uh, I want to describe that to you now, and this is uh, the section called homeostasis. If you've been asleep, nudge your neighbor, because this is the one thing I want you guys to try to remember is about homeostasis. It's funny because people remember homeostasis, and they'll look at me and say, hey, I remember that. They don't know my name. But they remember homeostasis. And i well, that's okay. We can take that. Homeostasis is a movement toward a stable state. Think about being in grade school on your teeter-totter. You know, how you're just kind of balancing yourself out, right, with your friend. And your body's doing this all the time. If it's too hot in here, I'll start to sweat. that will bring my temperature down. If it's too cold, I'll start to shiver. And my temperature comes back up. Your body's doing this. All the time. And it's also true of medications. Now, we don't believe in the chemical imbalance theory, but we do know that there's neurotransmitters involved and that you can put too much of those in your body. It does cause an equilibrium, in equilibrium, out of balance, an artificial imbalance. I'll give you some examples. Uh, acid reducers. Oh, these are great medicines. They work really well. I'm talking about drugs like Prilosec. Y'all know these? Nexium. Very common drugs, they work really well on blocking these acid pumps in your stomach. Okay? We like them. The problem is that your stomach recognizes that you don't have enough acid in there because the drugs work well. What is your stomach trying to do? Trying to make make more acid. If you look at the lining of your stomach over time, it actually changes... uh, this is a good thing the Lord has designed to make more acid. The more pumps appear, the morphology of your stomach changes. So what happens when a person stops taking their proton pump inhibitor uh, after about 48 hours? They get a lot of acid, and they are very uncomfortable. Probably some of you would say amen out loud because you probably had done that. Uh, yes, so this is, and then you begin to think, there's something wrong with my stomach. that I I took off the medicine, look what happened. And actually, that is actually a drug effect that happens on a lot of these medications. Same as sleeping medicines. Take too many sleeping medicines every night. Your body stops making sleep factors, and then you stop taking them, what happens? You don't sleep. You're just up, right? Same thing is true of the antidepressants, uh, this class. So you start to poop out because your body knows that it has, in in this case, uh, too much serotonin. And we can see this, actually, in research, where the the, the, the neurons, thinking about biology again, actually thinks, hey, I've got too much serotonin. I'm going to make less of it because I've got too much going on. So your body adjusts to it. On the other side, the other side of that neuron starts to become sluggish and less reactive to the serotonin because i got way too much. So, it, in a sense, the, the medicine over time, over, over several weeks... Uh, begins to equalize and you don't have that same effect. Um, and then when you stop taking the medicine, then you start to feel really bad after a few days because you really don't have enough of this neurotransmitter going on. Uh, it produces a dependence, this type of homeostasis we're talking about for normal functioning. So to act to function normal, you, you, you need the medicine. To stay equal, right? That's, that's what happens. It leads to lower responsiveness, and we end up with higher doses of these medicines. It leads to cocktailing. We use the word cocktailing. By the time they see me, sometimes they're on three different uh, antidepressants, uh, different doses, because they need that same effect, and it's lost its effectiveness. We do know, and Dr. Hodge's book, uh, Good Mood, Bad Mood, kind of talks about some of the research there, and I think it's it's mostly pretty clear now that the overuse of antidepressants causes a type of bipolar. We're not talking about bipolar 1, where there's some more manifestations of hallucinations. We're talking about bipolar 2. There's a really strong connection uh, of seeing how those progress. If you're interested in that, Dr. Hodges talks about that in his book. My my message here, oh, uh, there's another reason why, as counselors, our goal is not to cause... Cause our counselors to stop taking their medicines. So, when you were in grade school on your tear totter, when, when your friend jumped off, what happened to you? You crashed, right? You probably lost your friend, too. Uh, you don't have people, our job is not to get people off. Of med- we're not judging people by the medicines that they take. There's, we'll talk a little bit later about uh, that. I spend a lot of my time uh, at work working on this with people who want to come off, it's very tricky. Uh, but we never do it without a doctor, and again, it's not our primary goal. It's important to know when you're counseling people that are on these medicines. The, the next section of class are drugs that clear confused thinking. These are drugs like the antipsychotics. Uh, again, we don't know how they act. We do know they block a different transmitter called dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter of, of life, color, emotions. Uh, we It's involved in a lot of those things. I have asterisked... Uh, Schizophrenia and mental retardation, because I think now with PET scanning, it's pretty clear. People that hear voices and, and see visions and things like that, we can really see the, the these gaps, this damage that's in the brain. Uh, there's an easy correlation, I think, now to see that there's real pathology. And pathology, I mean, there's something not right. I work with uh, some mental retardation homes as well. And so we know some of their history, and so we use a lot of this class of drugs with these people, and, and it's helpful. Uh, they use these medicines for bipolar, and when I told you the antidepressants wear off, they will add some of these classes of drugs to give it another boost, so another layer of help. Older drugs like Haldol and Meloril, uh, Thorazine was the first one to come out in uh, late 50s. Uh, these drugs had a lot of movement disorder, side effects, uh, caused tardive, tardive dyskinesias, these movements. And when you stopped taking them, they didn't go away. They tend to be permanent. So we really wanted better and newer medicines. And so we look at drugs like the newer ones I have listed, Zyprexa, Seroquel, Risperdal, just very common medicines we see a lot now, didn't have that effect. So we are thankful that we've gotten to really some safer uh, medications. Uh, so they don't have the the newer ones don't have the movement disorders. There is weight gain, there is a dependence that forms in homeostasis with this medication as well. There's some issues of blood sugars and diabetes with some of these, and there's a very uh, disconcerting long term problem with the use of antipsychotics. I never like to talk about this part in my talks, but it is just the reality. Uh, if you uh, studies have done, if you have um, Psychosis and see hallucinating and things like that, about 18% of the time, if you don't do anything, your body recovers from that, and you don't seem to have it anymore. Uh, When you add antipsychotics to the story, over time, that gets worse. Um, You don't recover. The numbers drop to about 6%, uh, and you can see that. Some of that's talked about in the essays I mentioned earlier. Uh, And we can see now on PET scanning that long-term use, those gaps that I told you about, they tend to worsen uh, over the length of time. So what do you do for people who who really uh, have issues, gaps, and and schizophrenia, and they really need this medicine? Uh, the, The answer is we have this term. It's called the lowest effective dose. We're always trying to find the lowest effective dose because we're aware that there's a need And then there's a risk, and there's also a cardiovascular risk for this class of drugs that uh, the FDA requires. It's a a risk of uh, cardiovascular events, heart attacks, because of the way it affects the neurotransmitters. Okay, the the last section is the the mood stabilizers. These are drugs for bipolar. These are drugs uh, often, usually they were created because of dealing with seizures that help slow down the signaling in the brain. They also found it very helpful for bipolar when you're they're having these cycles of mania and depression. So there's some information on those medicines and don't have time to jump into that as much. Okay, there's a lot there. So we're going to wrap up at Part 3, Psychotropic Drugs and Biblical Counseling. Where the rubber hits the road a little bit. Uh, again, we want to change the heart, not feelings only. Uh, counseling, and we'll talk about that in the DSM uh, five when medication makes sense. And uh, I've left a guide to the counselor for you. This is important. This is a lot of this comes from some of Laura Hendrickson's writings. The Bible teaches that feelings are the result of beliefs, thinking and actions. I think you've heard some of these in the previous sessions. Just uh, ideas like uh, Proverbs 29:18, 18. Happy is he. Who keeps the law? There's a joy, in a, and in, in Genesis four seven, if you do well, God is talking to Cain here. If you remember, will not your countenance be lifted up? So there, there's a joy in and being living an obedient life, submitted to Christ, following His word. There's, there is a joy there. Unbiblical responses, however, often produce unpleasant feelings and emotional pain. It's supposed to be there, pain. Bad feelings are often God's warning system that something is wrong in a spiritual heart. Medication can mask that warning system so that the heart issues are not addressed. Remember telling you that you can use these drugs wrongly. Uh, I left a couple of examples here. Maybe you could be a thief and you're anxious that the police are coming to your door anytime now, <laughs> take you away. And you could take some medicines to calm those fears, right? But those fears are there really for a reason. You're dealing with guilt. Maybe uh, the other example is maybe it's the homosexual and he feels depressed because of the guilt of his sin. Well, we could give you medicine to help squash that and not feel as uh, you know, guilty about that. But that would be wrong. Wrong use of the medicine. However, medications can be helpful and even wise in situations where real pathology exists and in harmful situations like suicide. Someone seeing active hallucinations, these drugs help. From will medicine stop the pain, emotional pain or distressing thoughts may be signs that something is not right with our heart or inner persons. Our feelings aren't dysfunctional. They're not sick. Our feelings are doing just what they were created by God to do. They're showing us that we have a problem. Uh, To feel better, we need to fix the problem, not just make the pain. I think we mentioned some of that earlier. Painful feelings are meant to motivate us. That's a key word, motivate us to change. When medicine masks the pain feelings, there's no motivation motivation to learn to deal with them in a more godly way. And when the medication is discontinued, what happens? The painful feelings will return. Um, I like to talk about case studies. I've talked to people all the time about there uh, situations and some counseling situations they'll call me in. I like this one story that I haven't found to beat it yet, uh, but I'll share it with you. I think it's practical. Uh, a gentleman in our church ca- called me about his brother. His brother was uh, just really sad, and he his, his Christian psychiatrist had written him a prescription uh, to take and to deal with the sadness, and his brother just wanted to talk to someone about is this a good idea or not what about it and I said sure I'll be happy to talk so he calls me one evening and so he tells me about it and sure enough he, he can't sleep he's very down he can't really move out of his house he, he, everything's just shutting down and he, he's been given this prescription he wants to know if I should take it if he should take it so I take my pharmacist hat off and I put my counseling hat on and I start to gather what Data, yes, like what's going on, what's the history behind all this? And, you know, there's a lot of hemming and hawing, but we finally kind of get to the the real rut of it. It all kind of started when uh, he was caught in an adulterous affair by his wife in his house. And he's feeling really bad about that. And I'm having zero compassion. I'm wondering if he's called the wrong guy about to talk about this. But I had to encourage him that these feelings are doing exactly what God has placed them for. It's actually a good thing that you can't sleep and you're having trouble with all these other things. But my advice to him was now take that medication bottle. He hadn't started him yet. Take it to the, the doctor that gave him to you. Tell them what I, I told you and have a conversation with her about it. So he calls me and about a week later and he said, I talked to my doctor. I said, what did she say? She said, well, uh, I told him that you told me that I probably shouldn't start those medicines, that though that emotional pain was really there for a purpose and that that should help motivate me to counseling. And she agreed. (laughs) She said, that's a great idea. Why don't we do that? Uh, So the man in the end, I found out he put his his marriage back together. They went to biblical counseling and uh, they've had a restored marriage. Praise the Lord. Uh, it helps us think about how to deal with some of these thoughts. All right, my time is really almost up. But the, we'll, we mentioned the medical model earlier. Um, a little bit more about that. We mentioned that in the in the medical model in medicine, there's a disease, and then there's symptoms. Uh, some and we're looking for pathology. Something's broken. In the psychiatry, symptoms often have no pathology at all. Uh, but the diagnosis is named after the symptoms. So, you know, I have diabetes, okay, I have a problem that's broken my pancreas. Uh, in the psychiatric world, they just simply look at my symptoms, and they write them down, and they categorize them, and they give me a diagnosis, not really based on anything they could prove that was wrong. Uh, out of that comes the DSM, the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. We're on number five now. Uh, there's 157 disorders and syndromes. Most have no pathology to base it on. And there's a lot of infighting, even among the people who put it together, <laughs> on what's in and what's out. The other thing to know is that every time they come out with a new DSM, it changes dramatically on what's considered wrong and right and, and how they describe things. So it's, a, it's not an, a, a firm foundation at all. In fact, there's some problems with it. Some normal behaviors are labeled, uh, given labels. Uh, I like this one: this disruptive dysregulation disorder. What do you think that is? Rebellion. What's that? Rebellion. rebellion. Yes, exactly. It's rebellion. It's, it's not following uh, what your parents tell you or what. You know, my dad had a real good way of dealing with with disre- <laughs> dysregulation disorder. I didn't need any medicine for that. He fixed it. Uh, There is a relabeling of sin as disease. So now it's alcoholism rather than drunkenness. We understand drunkenness. We have a biblical word and we can go and find biblical solutions. Pedophilic disorder. It's under sexual sin. The Bible has a lot to say about that. But these labels can be used uh, in a sense to help blame shift in some ways a person's conscience, rather than having personal responsibility. So you as counselors should be aware of that. It can sue the guilty conscience rather than the confrontation that is needed, and also be aware of a new assigned identity where they, they're given a label, and they think, well, that's what I am and who I am. And if you're a believer, it's in Christ, right? And you have to reset that mind. Charles Hodges, uh, in the Gospel of Mental Illness seminar, he, he reminds us of three things to remember. Never call disease what the Bible calls sin. Don't call it sin if the Bible doesn't cause it sin. You have to look for a biblical name. And always look, in these cases, for pathology. So medication does make sense if there's pathology involved. In dangerous situations where there's a suicide or hallucinations going on, those, it makes sense. Uh, slow tapering, maybe somebody's trying to come off. Dr. Hendrickson also talks a little bit about this. And it's just hard, but they want to, you know, just it, it's, it's not a have to. Uh, it can. It's fine if they need to stay on these medicines. We don't judge them on that. Uh, it's not a good time. I mean, medications make sense. Uh, if there's other physical issues that are being addressed uh, and they want to come off some of these medicines or something, but they're having their gallbladder taken out. <laughs> It's, we can wait. It's not anything that's urgent. And maybe it's the wrong time. Maybe there's a, a family ordeal going on or a passing, a death. Uh, these these are things that are secondary, and they can we can wait. And Dr. Hendrickson also liked to point out that when a counselee just got stuck and got really low and needed a little boost, that there was nothing morally wrong at all with taking some of these medicines to help get them up when... At the same time, you're involving the scriptures, you're renewing the mind in counseling. There's no reason that you uh, you cannot do both of those at the same time. All right. Wow. I am out of time and mostly out of breath. Um, I'm going to close this. Okay, on the end of your notes, I'll you a counselor's guide there. And you can read that later. Uh, it just talks about how to walk through this, uh, what we've talked about That's from Dr. Robert Smith, the late Dr. Robert Smith. This is rather old, but it's really good information on how to walk through and think about this. Uh, And I want to close us with Colossians 2. We started with this verse. uh, when We started this uh, in prayer, but I want to finish it because I think it applies. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. Just as you were instructed an overflowing with gratitude. This is an idea of a tree. Psalms one roots going deep, bearing fruit. This is what the gospel brings as we apply the scriptures to ourselves. See to it while that's happening. See to it. No one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Here's why. For in him, all the fullness of deity Dwells in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete, all that we need, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Lord, we thank you, Father, for the mercy and grace and the hope that you've brought to us in Christ. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be swayed by some of the worldly philosophies, but we would keep our minds set on you as we try to help people uh, with, their, uh, with their issues, try to offer encouragement to them. So bless the rest of this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.